Let's open our Bibles or your Bible app this morning to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, 21. Uh, I am beginning a new series of sermons today called The Pardon, Forgiving the Unforgettable. And we're going to walk through several passages of Scripture that talk to us uh, about the what and the whys of forgiveness. When we talk about pardon, some of you might have heard that word in the last few weeks for the first time. It's not one that we use like a great deal, but uh, presidents of the United States and some state governors have the authority to pardon someone. A pardon is actually a legal act of forgiveness. It is saying that a person has either committed a crime and been convicted of it maybe, or they've been accused of a crime. And a president, by the stroke of a pen, can remove the, the uh, consequences of their being found guilty. They can stop any investigation into a crime. I mean, you are completely set free if you receive a presidential pardon. President Trump used that power in his last few days of in office to pardon, uh, to, to remove from guilt uh, a lot of people. Among them was Lil Wayne. I was really sweating it for Lil Wayne. He, he was uh, accused or convicted, actually, of a federal uh, gun law violation and uh, was sentenced to a couple years in prison. But he's been, I mean, he is set free. There's no more consequence. He cannot be tried. He cannot be retried or accused for, for that. Now, sometimes presidential pardons are controversial. Like former President Clinton, he pardoned his brother Roger of a cocaine charge. That, that seemed like a little bit of nepotism, but sometimes they're very consequential. 1977, President Carter pardoned, issued a blank, blanket pardon for every person who had evaded the draft during the Vietnam War. Made a lot of people angry, um, but it put an issue to rest. In, uh, his in the previous administration, President Gerald R. Ford actually pardoned his predecessor, President Richard Nixon, bringing an end to uh, the Watergate saga. And perhaps one of the most significant pardons in American history was one that you'd have to dig pretty deep to find, and that is that on Christmas Day, 1868, President Andrew Johnson, in defiance of his own political party, who had refused to renominate him for president, but in defiance even to his political allies, pardoned every Confederate soldier, officer, and office holder for treason, insurrection, or rebellion against the United States. And though it was very unpopular at the time, it brought, historians say it brought peace and healing to the country that was still very, very divided. Now, actually, the power to pardon was rooted in the power of kings. While the founders of our country did not want to give our president all the powers of a king, they preserved that one power, the power to pardon. And while it is the prerogative of a president to offer a pardon, what you need to understand is that it is within your power to pardon as well. That you have the power to pardon, to set free from guilt and consequences and revenge. People have hurt you, humiliate you, or harmed you. Now look, let's just be honest. None of us walk through this life without getting scarred. If they're not physical scars, they're on our heart. Every single one of us has been hurt 
We've had things said to us. We've been betrayed. We've been cheated. Somebody has stolen something. Somebody has offended us. All of us have walked through this life and nobody comes out of it without getting hurt. And how we handle those hurts and offenses says a lot about our maturity, but it says also a lot about our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, I am absolutely convinced we need to learn what it means to forgive, why we should do it, and how we should do it. Apart from Bible reading and prayer, I believe that the discipline of forgiving others, of letting people off the hook, of letting bygones be bygones, of overlooking an offense, is one of the greatest methods to spiritual growth. It demonstrates our maturity and it provokes us to greater maturity. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture today that's kind of lengthy, but it, there is uh, both a principle and a parable in this passage, and they lead us to one point, and so that's what I really want us to, to focus in on today. Peter comes to Jesus, and he's got a question for Jesus. I also think when I read this, Peter is saying, Jesus, I want you to notice how mature I'm getting, how, how I'm growing spiritually, Jesus, and then Jesus returns uh, Peter's question with an astounding answer. And then he tells this incredible story. So I want us to look at this beginning at uh, chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, verse 21. We're going to just read a couple of verses. Keep your Bible open. I'm going to come back. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Peter comes to Jesus with what I do believe is an honest question about forgiveness. And then there's just a little bit of self-promotion and up to seven times, I think. But Jesus' response to this is just remarkable. What is it that Jesus is telling us about forgiveness? Here's the, the first thing I want you to know that Jesus is telling us about forgiveness. Number one, stop setting limitations on forgiveness. We all set limitations on forgiveness. Now, Peter asked this question, you know, should I, should I forgive somebody up to seven times? And what Peter knew that, that maybe we don't see is that there was a great debate among Jewish rabbis in this day and time about how many times should you forgive somebody. Kind of over on the legalistic side, there was this group of rabbis that said, you only have to forgive if the person comes to you and apologizes and asks you to forgive them. You don't owe anybody forgiveness if they don't ask for it. Kind of in the middle uh, were a group of rabbis who said, no, you have to forgive once, at least one time, you got to forgive. But over on the kind of more gracious side, there were rabbis who, in sort of a, a, an astounding statement, said, no, you must forgive up to seven times. And so when Peter comes to Jesus, Peter knows about this debate among the rabbis, and he says, Jesus, look how gracious I am. 
I've moved all the way over here. I've heard what you taught us about grace and love and mercy. And, and I've, I've moved all the way over to the seven-time group, Jesus. Isn't that good? And Jesus says, Peter, you don't just forgive them seven times. You forgive them 70 times seven. Now, some of you have already done the math. And you're like, 490 times, like, I'm going to have to keep up with this on a note on my iPhone or something to kind of figure out what that, how many times they've offended me until I get to my limit. Actually, what Jesus is doing is a bit of a play on, uh, not on words, but on numbers. You see, numbers meant something in Jewish life, and seven is the number of completion. And when Jesus says, uh, it's not seven times, but 70 times seven. He's saying to perfect completion, to divine completion. You forgive like God forgives is what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is telling us you don't have a limit on forgiveness. You just keep forgiving. Some of us think of forgiveness like we think about maybe like basketball. Uh, some of you are going to find this amusing, especially the dads in the room. But I am coaching my daughter's 12-year-old YMCA basketball team. And hey, hey, we won yesterday, all right? We, we, we won yesterday. I got, I got my girls up there. Up in the, they're up in the balcony up there. That's, that's fantastic. But we won yesterday. But if you were to play a basketball game, you know that um, you get one foul in the first quarter. And that's, that, there's no consequence, right? Get that second foul, but man, that third foul, we're getting more cautious. That fourth foul, oh man, we're on the edge. But you get that fifth foul, and you are done. You are going to the bench. Somebody else is going to play your spot the rest of the game. You have fouled out. What Peter's saying is, it's not five fouls, it's seven forgivenesses. After seven forgivenesses, you're the grace Nazi. No grace for you. And Peter is saying, is that the way it ought to work? That seems gracious. And Jesus is saying, no, stop setting limitations on forgiveness. Now, we all rationalize our limitations on forgiveness. Let me give you four rationalizations that we use for not forgiving people. First, the hurt is too big. You don't understand, Bob. The hurt is too big. Now, I talk to people a lot about issues where forgiveness is necessary. And when I look at somebody sometimes and say, look, you've just got to make the decision to start the process of forgiving that person. By the way, I'm going to talk about this more in this series. Forgiveness is both a decision and a process. It's both. It's not an either or. And they say, but Bob, you don't understand. You don't understand how much I've been hurt. You see, I've been hurt more than any human in the history of humanity. What has happened to me is the worst thing that has ever happened to anybody since Adam and Eve. I mean, I am the chief of hurts here. I, I am at the top. My hurt is at the top of all hurts. And that's the way all of us feel. The hurt is too big. Let me say this to you. When the hurt is big, and I am not denying, I mean, people do things sometimes that are huge. Uh, I'll point out a couple, like adultery, yes, that is big. Someone harms your child, that is big. I'm not saying there aren't big hurts. But here's what I want you to know. The bigger the hurt, the more urgent it is that you deal with it. 
the bigger the hurt, you've got to deal with that. You've got to get with God. You've got to eventually get with that person. You have got to deal with the issue of forgiveness because the bigger the hurt, the more it will dominate your life. Here's the second. Not only the hurt is too big, but the second rationalization we, need in the, we use is, I need more time. I need more time. Look, I realize that when you have a very simplistic view of forgiveness and you think that forgiveness is just saying the words, oh, okay, I forgive you, and you turn and you walk away, when really forgiveness is a bit longer process for us, not just spiritually but emotionally, that you may think you, you have to have more time to complete the process of forgiveness. But taking more time to start forgiving others only allows anger and bitterness to grow in your life. You see, unforgiveness plants a seed in our hearts. And that seed begins to grow. Here's the way the writer of Hebrews put it. See to it that none of you fall short of the grace of God. And that a root, no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it many are defiled. You see, the longer you take in a spirit of unforgiveness the more a root of bitterness grows in your life. And when that root of bitterness takes hold of your heart, it will then begin to grow and affect and infect every other relationship. The excuse, I need more time, only allows a, an emotional and spiritual cancer to grow in your life. Third, but Bob, they really aren't sorry. Probably not. If you are waiting for them to be sorry, you're going to be waiting in some cases for a very, very long time. Forever, as a matter of fact, in some cases. Look, sometimes I've hurt people's feelings and because I am a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has said to me, hey, Bob, you're really messed up there. You need to go apologize. And I, as best I can, have always tried to follow that leading. And sometimes, yes, you're going to get an apology. But you know what? There are people who hurt you who aren't followers of Jesus. And they're not sensing that same sense of conviction that you're feeling. They don't think what they did to you was wrong. They have rationalized it in their minds. They think it's just fine that they cheated you, that they stole from you, that they lied about you, that they, that they somehow uh, manipulated a situation and took something that should have been rightfully yours. They think that what they did is fine. As a matter of fact, you know what they would say? Everybody's doing it. You're not going to get an apology. Forgiveness does set a prisoner free. But sometimes that prisoner is me. Forgiveness isn't just about the other person. I need, forgive, I need to forgive because I need to be set free from bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. Fourth is this. They'll just do it again. Bob, if I forgive them, they'll just do it again. I want you to think about this. Peter and Jesus 
Peter's saying, Lord, if they sin against me, do I forgive them up to seven times? Peter assumes they're going to do it again. Jesus says 70 times seven. He assumes they're going to do it again. Forgive them anyway. Forgive them anyway. And so Jesus would say to us, stop setting limitations on forgiveness. Number two, see your great need for forgiveness. You need to see your great need for forgiveness. Let's take the offense away for just a moment and talk about us. Talk about, let's look in the mirror for just a moment. And Jesus does that by telling a remarkable story. Look back at the text at verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now, let me help you with something in this story that uh, a couple of things in the story that will help you understand how astounding this was to the first people that ever heard it. First of all, when we think we hear the word slave. We think someone who performs very menial tasks, someone who does manual labor. We think of that kind of slave. But ancient kings had servants and slaves who were actually empowered uh, in their kingdom with a lot of authority. And this person seems to have been someone who was very close to the king, someone who was entrusted with the king because the Bible says, or Jesus tells this story, and he says he was settling accounts. He does an audit of the books. This guy might have been like the treasurer. He might have been the person who handled the king's finances. And when they do, do the audit of the books, they find out that he owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, I realize that that means absolutely nothing to you. That doesn't that doesn't compute as far as like how severe this was. But the talent was the highest unit of measure for money. And he owes the king 10,000 talents. This is the equivalent of saying he owed the king a billion dollars in our modern parlance. What this is saying is this was an unrepayable amount of money. Even the king's thought that I'm going to sell you as a slave, I'm going to sell your wife and children as a slave, I'm going to take your house and sell your real estate, I'm going to sell your wife's jewelry, anything you own, I'm going to sell it, would have only been a fraction, a tiny fraction of 10,000 talents. This slave owes a debt he could never repay. He could never have touched this. He could have worked the rest of his life and never gotten close to 10,000 talents. But he says to the king, he makes a promise he can't keep. I'll repay it all. He gets down on his knees. And the king felt compassion for him, released him, and forgave him the debt. He pardoned him. 
You say, well, Bob, how does that story help me forgive at all? Jesus is saying something about us. You see, we owe an unpayable debt to our king. I owe a debt to my king that no amount of religion, no amount of ritual, no amount of works could ever repay. My sin debt is so enormous that there is no way that I could do anything to make it right. The best of my efforts would just be a tiny decimal point of what I actually owe my king. And yet, my king has compassion on me. And he releases me. And he forgives my debt. That's what the gospel is about, folks. That there's no way we could be right with God. There's no way I could ever repay this sin debt that I have before God. But he, in his love and his mercy and his compassion. See, I think one of the things we Christians don't grasp is the severity of our sin. I read a quote this week. That if I only understood the seriousness of my sin, then and only then would I grasp the greatness of his grace. It's only then that I figure out how incredible his forgiveness is. But I want you to think about this. Forgiveness was free to the servant, but it cost the king something. It always does. Forgiveness is free to the one who receives it, right? But forgiveness is costly to the one who gives it. In the story that Jesus told, the king simply absorbs the debt. It costs the king 10,000 talents, this huge amount of money. But out of love and mercy and grace, he absorbs the cost. My king chose to pay my debt. He came and he died on a cross to die a death he did not deserve to pay a debt he did not owe. That's Jesus. You say, well, Bob, how does that help me? How does, how do, how does that help me? If you see your great need for forgiveness, if you understand how much you've been forgiven, then I'm not going to say it makes it easy because it doesn't. Forgiveness isn't easy, but it makes it possible for you to forgive, to let it go, and to trust God with it. Third, study the negative fallout of unforgiveness. Jesus, one of the things that I love about Jesus, and I love about my job, actually, is when I get to study some of these things, I believe Jesus was the greatest storyteller that ever lived. And I love the stories that Jesus tells. Some people say the prodigal son is the greatest story that's ever been told. And I'm not going to argue that this morning. But I think this story is really close to it. Because when Jesus told this story, the twist in the beginning that this king would forgive this servant. It was just, 
It was mind-boggling. But Jesus has another half to the story. Look at verse 28. But that slave, the one who's just been forgiven, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus comes to the point. Don't miss this. The point. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. I want you, for just a moment, to consider to dig in, to study with me the negative fallout of unforgiveness. This servant has been set free from this unpayable, let's just call it the billion-dollar debt, an inconceivable amount of money. He is walking down the street, and he encounters someone who he's loaned some money to. Maybe he loaned part of that 10,000 talents. I don't know. But he loaned him 100 denarii. The contrast was obvious to Jesus' original audience. It's not to us. I get it. A denarii was the, what an average person made for a day's labor. Now, if there are 365 days in a year, and there are, and you owe someone 100 denarii, about 100 days work, or about a third, if you take out Sabbaths, about a third of a year's salary. According to the Department of Labor, the average American last year made $30,000 a year. A third of that's $10,000. This guy owed the king a billion dollars, and it was forgiven. His fellow servant owed him $10,000. Now, I'm saying $10,000 is some money, okay? It's not nothing. It's not saying it's nothing. But it is manageable, right? Consider your own salary. Whatever it is you make, take a third of it for a year. You could repay that given a little time, a payment plan. It's manageable. But rather than hearing his fellow servants plea for mercy. By the way, read it. It's almost, almost Word for word, exactly what the ungrateful servant said to the king. The Bible says he not only said no, but he choked him around the neck. And he threw him in prison. 
Here is a guy who has been forgiven much, and he refuses to even be patient, much less forgive. Very little. What's some of the fallout of unforgiveness in this passage? Let me, let me show you three things real quick. First of all, there are shattered relationships. I saw something in this text this week I, I'd never really seen before, even though I've studied it in the past. In verse 28, he says he found one of his fellow slaves. The word fellow that's used there is a root word for the word we use a lot in the church, fellowship. It means being in partnership with one another. These people had a relationship with one another. Maybe it was just a work relationship, but they had an an acquaintanceship with one another, maybe a friendship with one another. But now all of that lies in ruins because of unforgiveness. I want to tell you something. Relationships are worth more than my hurt. There are times that I need to extend forgiveness because people matter. They matter to God and they ought to matter to me. And shattered relationships is nothing to brag about in the life of a believer. We ought to work to preserve, to repair, and to defend our relationships with one another. Part of the fallout of unforgiveness is a shattered relationship. Second, second consequence we lose respect, the respect of others. If you look in verse 31, there are some more of his fellow slaves, other people that he works with, he's acquainted with. Maybe they've had dinner together before. They consider one another friends. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. I mean, they had watched what the king just did. He's been forgiven so much, but he can't forgive a little. They lost respect for him. I grew up in a very, very small town. It's actually smaller than Holiday, but maybe picture Holiday. Our colors were even red and white, by the way. And the school, like in a lot of small towns, was the center of life in my my hometown. And athletics was the bullseye, sports. That's that's life in a small town. Um, I graduated from high school, and I went to college. And uh, I didn't, I was too young to know exactly what it was all about. Uh, I was, you know, just a college student. But my coach got crossways with some people and they made some accusations about him. And the whole town was just divided over this. That people picked sides and, and there were definitely people who supported my coach, but there were people who were against my coach and they kind of spearheaded this drive to fire my coach. And, uh, and ultimately my coach was fired from his job. And he was still in the town. And I came home from college and I went down to the local dairy bar, the only place in town that you could get a burger and a milkshake, you know. And I walk in one day to get lunch and my coach is sitting there. I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I didn't know anything about I didn't know if the accusations were true or not, but I love my coach. So I sat down with coach and had lunch. And there were several other people who had come in. They were sitting at tables next to us. And we we're kind of talking across the tables and avoiding the subject of the fact that he'd been fired. And um, someone brought up the name of one of the people who was on the opposite side. And they said, hey, did you guys hear about Mr. Smith? He's been diagnosed with cancer. And my coach said these words, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I love my coach. 
But something in me that moment was deeply grieved. I lost a lot of respect for my coach in that moment. Unforgiveness will cause you to ultimately lose the respect of others. Why? Because that root of bitterness grows and it springs up and it defiles many. You cannot contain the bitterness of unforgiveness. And let me tell you something else. You can't keep it targeted to the one person. Eventually, it just begins to spill over into every other relationship. People see it and you lose their respect. Why is that important? Because you lose your testimony. You lose your witness. You say that Christ is all in all to you. You say that Christ has forgiven you, but you don't act like it. So it doesn't look real. But third and finally, we experience the displeasure of our king. We experience the displeasure of our king. Now, parables are human stories to reflect a divine quality. So ultimately, they all break down somewhere. Please do not understand this text to mean that if you don't forgive, that God's going to revoke the forgiveness that he's given you. Not what it means. Not what it means. But what it does mean is this. That you cannot live with unforgiveness and experience the blessings of your king at the same time. It will not work. Some people say, I just don't understand why my prayers aren't being answered. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm coming to church. You know, I'm reading my Bible. I I hear that. Is there an issue of unforgiveness? I just don't understand why life doesn't work out for me. It just seems like good things don't happen to me. Good things happen to other people. Is there an area of unforgiveness in your life? Because unforgiveness blocks God's blessings. It will happen every time. We're going to deal with some of this a lot more deeper in the next few weeks. But I simply want to ask you a couple of questions. First and foremost, the simple one is this. The simple question. Is there an area of your life? Is there, let, let's just be more specific. Is there a person or people you need to forgive this morning? Is there someone for you? In a few minutes, we're going to sing... And um, these steps could become your altar. Maybe for some of us, we need to maybe drive down the stake and say, I had a moment, an experience with God. And it might require more of you than simply sitting where you are. Now, you could do it where you are, but for some of us, we need something a bit more concrete. You may need to just come, just like people have done in other services, and, and just kneel here and pray. And if you need to do that, nobody's going to bother you. Um, We won't come over and question you. I mean, you just come and you lay it there before God. But some of you may need to receive God's forgiveness. You may need to receive the forgiveness for that unpayable debt that you have. Perhaps you've never received the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Now, in just a few minutes, some of our pastors will be here at the front as we sing as well. If you need to understand and to know the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer you, I'm going to ask you to go to one of the pastors. If you've got a burden, you just want to pray about it, you can do that. But if you need to receive Jesus, 
You come to one of our pastors. We'll take you to a quiet place to pray with you. If you need to ask some questions, we'd love to do that. But I'm going to pray, and after that, we're going to sing. And if you want to come, you come. Father, we give you this moment, and Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts. Some of us really need to forgive some people. Some of us have carried a burden and a wound for way too long. And Lord, we're asking you to do a work in our hearts today. But Father, I pray for those who've never trusted Jesus, never received from you the incredible forgiveness to be set free from our sin, from the guilt and the shame and the future punishment for that sin. Father, I pray for those in this room who need that today. And I pray they'll have the courage to step forward and say, I want Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen.